We finally now come to the last chapter of the book of Romans where Paul basically uh, gives a rather lengthy greeting saying goodbye as he's signing off in this letter. And I know that nobody likes long extended goodbyes. Uh, so we're actually going to just take the entire 16th chapter uh, as a whole. I think it was intended to be a closing greeting anyway, the way it flows. So uh, we're going to cover the 16th chapter. Obviously, we'll have to comment a little less, but a lot of these are just greetings you'll see as we go through. But we'll try and glean from it what the Spirit of God would uh, give to us this morning, and we'll close out our study in the book of Romans together. We're going to read just a little portion of it to sort of lay the foundation. Why don't we stand together? as we do out of reverence for God's word as we read our portion of scripture this morning. Paul says, Romans 16.1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my own life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epineus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and fellow prisoners who were of note among the apostles and who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apellus, approved in Christ, and greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Verse 17 through 21, Paul will give, we'll see, a final exhortation. Look with me over to verse 21 as he then extends some greetings from those he was with. He says, And Timothy, my fellow worker, and uh, Lucius, and Jason, and Sospater, my countrymen, they greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host of the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the treasure of the city, greet you. And Cordus, a brother. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Christ Jesus forever. Amen. And Father, we ask that you would prepare us now mentally, physically, most important spiritually, Lord, to hear what the voice of your Holy Spirit would speak to us through these words that your spirit once inspired. We pray that your same spirit now would help us to understand every intent contextually and personally in a way that you would have us to learn from these things. Speak to us and teach us through your spirit's ministry. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, what do you think honestly matters most to God? I think there are a number of different things we could think through of an answer to that, but I think it would be very safe to say that very high on the list of what matters most to God would be people and relationships. People and relationships. God clearly loves and values people, and God wants to have a relationship with every person on this planet. 
In the same way, God wants you and I to love and to value people. And God wants us to establish and maintain relationships with other people. It is not God's plan that anyone live isolated. Nor is it ever God's intention for us to become sort of a lone ranger or even to make excuses that we all do at times for maybe kind of detaching ourselves from being among people, even detaching ourselves from being among God's people in the church and beginning to function independent of others. Listen, we were created and designed to live interdependent with other people. And that's not just among Christianity. That's just life in general. We were created to live in conjunction and relationship and harmony with other people, interconnected and interdependent upon others, and especially in spiritual life, and especially as well as we step out to serve the Lord in ministry. That is wise. It's healthy. It's safe for every one of us. It is not healthy, wise, or safe for any one of us to ever isolate ourselves or live alone. In fact, Proverbs 18 says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise counsel. So the Bible shows us how it's, it's a very unhealthy thing when we are independent or isolating ourselves. It is most productive for us to live together with others and it's God's heart that we live and function relationally in our lives, that we serve corporately together and, and interact like a family. And Romans 16 almost sort of gives to us sort of a snapshot picture, if you would, of the family of God. And I think this is illustrated by the whole Holy Spirit in this chapter as Paul now closes out this letter as we're seeing in our reading with a lengthy section now some 26 or 7 different people Paul greets whom he knew relationally as friends and family members in the body of Christ and he also then sends greetings from those he was with again all of this emphasizing relationships people relationships the Holy Spirit sets before us here look with me beginning in verse 1 as Paul begins this closing section he says first I commend to you Phoebe our sister who is a servant of the church in Centria which was a seaport in Corinth the area where Paul was that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So Paul begins his closing section by giving an introduction here of this woman, Phoebe, and some words of recommendation regarding her to the church in Rome where he's writing this letter asking them to receive her when she comes among them. Now, it is believed and very likely that it is Phoebe who was the one who actually delivered this letter, the letter of Romans, to the church there in Rome. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from Corinth, where he's at right now at the time, sending this letter to the church in Rome. And there was no, in that day, official postal service as there is today to send deliveries or letters. Typically, deliveries or letters were made personally by individuals as they traveled and moved around in the ancient culture. Customary with that was also typically a note of introduction that if I were to send someone with a letter on my behalf to you, I would many times, whether a letter or delivery, write a little note of introduction regarding them 
so that when they came, you knew that they were credible in my eyes and that they were someone who should be respected and received so that as they came to you and delivered whatever they did, that word of commendation assured the recipients that this is someone indeed who we can have a sense of confidence and be comfortable with to, and treat them well without reservations or concerns if perhaps they were a stranger to us. And that's why Paul here says in our verses, I want to commend to you Phoebe and look a few things he says about her. He says our sister, which indicates she was a genuine believer in Christ. She was a part of the family of God. Paul calls her a servant, he says, from the church of Centria, again, a seaport village of Corinth, which shows us that Phoebe was engaged in sort of an active servant participating somehow in forms of service there in her local church back in Corinth. And notice that she had a good reputation, we see verse 2, of being a very helpful person. Paul says the end of verse 2 regarding this sister in the Lord Phoebe says she has been a helper of many and also Paul says of myself also so she was just a lady who was known Phoebe was for just always being willing to help however and whatever way was needed and it seems she probably had some business to attend to in Rome and it's very likely as she knew she'd be traveling to Rome that she probably offered to Paul to carry this letter that he wrote to the Romans to them and to safely deliver it there and Paul took her up on that offer and had full confidence in her reliability to be able to get it there on his behalf that's why he's now asking the church there in verse 2 to receive her in the Lord in a manner, he says, worthy of the saints. So Paul's speaking highly of her. He's commending her and he's saying, listen, please warmly welcome her. Treat her well when she arrives. Even says there, and I'm asking verse two, he says, please assist her in any way in whatever business she has need of why she's there among you in Rome. So Phoebe, this beautiful picture, may her tribe increase. This woman who the Bible speaks of that was just willing to help whomever, however, and whenever needed. Known for being a very helpful woman. And I'll tell you, godly women like this are, are just a valuable asset to families, to churches, uh, how many helpful women so often participate and do so many helpful things in the body of Christ and may tree, uh, Phoebe's tribe increase. And think of this, Phoebe had no idea how this simple way of being helpful, she thinks, okay, I'll just, all right, give me that scroll, I'll put it here in my satchel or ancient purse of the day. And, and, I, and she had no idea that she would be blessing and benefiting even you and I this morning as she carries one of the most doctrinally you know, wealthy portions of New Testament Scripture, the book of Romans. So again, oftentimes we may help what we think is in very simple ways and we may be contributing to something so much far-reaching, way above and beyond what we could ever imagine in the kingdom of God's sake. Don't ever despise the little thing you may do to help. And to realize the eternal impact would be way beyond what you think. So Paul now begins verse 3 with his greetings. He says in verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, he says, Who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, he says, verse 5, Also greet the church that is there in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila, this Christian couple, quite a stellar 
couple they were. The first time we find them mentioned in the Bible is in Acts chapter 18. Uh, They're a prominent couple. They show up half a dozen times in the New Testament. Paul first meets them there in Corinth. And the reason they had gone to Corinth is they had left Rome, it seems, where they were originally from, because of a great persecution that came under the time of Claudius against the Jews. And Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18 tells us, were tent makers. And so was Paul the Apostle. And so because of that, when Paul went to Corinth, he stood with them and it seems they worked together, a a common trade in their business, working as tent makers. No doubt as you worked with Paul or if you let Paul lodge with you, you knew what happened very quickly. Paul talked to you about Jesus. And probably Priscilla and Aquila were converted under Paul uh, in the ministry together with them. Ultimately, they then, the Bible tells us, move with Paul as he goes over to Ephesus to minister. And there in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, this godly Christian couple, there end up helping a young man named Apollos who it says was very eloquent in speaking and trying to communicate the scriptures, but he didn't have a full understanding. So they, this Christian couple, bring in this man Apollos and they disciple him to give him a clear understanding of the gospel message and to understand the way of God more accurately. And then ultimately they end up back in Rome. Notice where they are now, where Paul is writing to greet them there in Rome. He acknowledges verse 4, notice, giving them thanks for what they did for him. He says, this couple risked their own necks for my life and therefore I give thanks to them for that. Now, we don't know what this instance is referring to. Apparently, somewhere along the line, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, had done something pretty profound to come to Paul's defense or to come to his protection. They actually, Paul says, put their own neck on the line. They risked somehow their own life to support and to stand by Paul, maybe when he was being arrested or under attack at one time, but they did something very loyally and faithfully to put their own neck on the line and risk their own welfare personally or maybe their reputation publicly to stand with Paul in faithfulness. And Paul deeply appreciated that. And can I just say, you know what? Those are invaluable relationships. Those are invaluable friendships and relationships, not only people who will serve with you, but people who will actually also stand by you. And stand by you at times in your life, maybe loyally, when it is hard and risky. And it's even personally risky to stand by someone and risk your own neck or put your own neck on the line to stand together with someone in those times. And this couple was like that. And those are valuable relationships to have in all of our lives, to have at least a few good friends or brothers or sisters in Christ who will be those kind of dedicated, loyal relationships. Notice also, told here in verse 5, that they hosted gatherings. It says here, greet the church that's in their house. Again, what a... What a married couple. Not only did they serve the Lord and minister together, but they also, it seems here, opened their home for believers to assemble in their house for meetings, possibly for Bible studies, or maybe it was a small congregation that was beginning to meet and assemble in their home. And understand, out of necessity in ancient culture, many times out of necessity, this is often how believers had to meet. 
wasn't necessarily because something was more spiritual about a house meeting rather than meeting in a public building, but uh, this was how often in the ancient culture they had to meet because of persecution and lack of resources to have a meeting facility. And how gracious, you know, when a family will allow their house to be used for the Lord and for his work. What a beautiful thing, because that's, that's tough. That means maybe uh, you know, allowing some stains to happen on the carpet and people to come over and eat all your food and stay at your house too late when you got to get up for work the next morning. And what a beautiful thing when a couple says, Lord, as for me and my house, not just my family, my house will serve you. And my house belongs to you, Lord, and you can use it for your purposes with God's people. And notice also from this verse here that the church is not a meeting place or a structure. The church is people. Look what it says there in verse 5. Greet the church that's in your house. The house was the structure. A lot of times we hear the word church, we think of a building. I'm going to the church. But the biblical understanding of the church is called out ones. You are the church. This is the church. So whether it's in a house or whether it's meeting in a school or a community, you know, club or, 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 or in a strip mall, the church is the people. Uh, and here the Bible indicates that and reminds us of it. He goes on, verse 5, to say, Greet my beloved Epineus who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. So this man maybe was the first one or one of the first of a harvest of souls that got saved there in the area of Asia Minor. Verse 6, he says, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. So Paul praises this Mary. There were many Marys in the Bible. We're not told which one. But he praises this Mary for being a woman, notice, who labored much, Paul says, for us. So she did some great amount of work and labor for the work of the Lord that happened through Paul and through his missionary team as they served. She apparently did some supportive and helpful things to assist Paul's team. And as a leader, he greatly valued someone like that who was willing to labor in an assistive capacity to take on tasks and responsibilities. You know, Paul understood as a leader in ministry, it usually only takes a few people to provide leadership but it takes a lot of people to get the labor and work of ministry done. That's why Jesus, the greatest leader of the kingdom of God, our Lord, said these words, the harvest is plentiful. And then he said, but the leaders are few? Well, he said, the laborers are few. And he said, pray the Lord of harvest to send out leaders into the harvest. He said, pray, send out laborers. People who are willing to roll up their sleeves and just let their life be used, give their labor to the Lord's work. He says, verse 7, greet Andronicus and Hunia, my countrymen, which means they were Jews like Paul, and my fellow prisoners who were of note among the apostles. So they had a great reputation among the apostles and leaders in the early church. And Paul also says they were in Christ before me. So he indicates these Christian friends he talks about, Andronicus and Hunia. Paul says they were actually in Christ. They were Christians before I was even a Christian. So these are what you call, we often use the term, seasoned saints. And Paul realized the value of people like that. Even as a pastor, a, a leader, a teacher, an apostle, Paul said, but you know what? Hey, there are some people that have been in Christ before I have, 
And they're a great value to me. You know, to have someone like that, a, a seasoned saint who's just walked with Jesus a really long time. And a lot of times people like that can be a great encouragement. And no doubt they probably encouraged Paul and had a special place in his life, even as a minister of the gospel. He also calls them here in our text, verse 7, fellow prisoners. He calls them my fellow prisoners, which means obviously these two people had spent time in prison during one of the occasions when Paul the Apostle had gotten thrown into prison as he often did for preaching the gospel and they and Paul together shared the same difficult lonely hard circumstances for a season of time and that sharing of difficult lonely hard experiences apparently forged a really close bond and knit their hearts together in a unique way as they shared those similar hardships, as they were sort of forged together relationally on a whole nother level because of that, as they shared incarceration time together. And, you know, isn't it true, as we think of our own lives, how oftentimes God can use that in the same way with us and the relationships we have with people? That sometimes as we're going through a painful, hard experience or are incarcerated in our own difficult, hard circumstances, and yet there's somebody else that we know in the body of Christ or, or a few people that are going through a really hard time as well. It may be slightly different, but, but they're going through a really hard, lonely, difficult, painful experience. And isn't it amazing how through those things, when you, when you share them together as fellow sufferers, how it forges a bond with people sometimes and it forges a, a closeness with people. And here Paul had a special place in his heart for this couple. He said, they were my fellow prisoners. We, we really drew close, he said. We drew strength from each other as we suffered together during that time when we were in prison together. Verse 8 and 9, Paul then goes on to say, Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. So Paul mentioned some other greetings. Honestly, we don't really know much of anything about these particular people. We could only speculate, but they were special to Paul in the Lord. He loved them. He worked with them. They lived, it seems, scripturally. We're just sort of left as looking at them as people in obscurity. We're not told much about them, but notice they mattered to Paul, and God knew their names and God knows what they've done and God records their names. And listen, let me say to you, maybe all anybody in this church will ever know is your name. And they may never know one thing you ever do for Jesus. But I tell you this, God knows every single thing that you do for Jesus. And he keeps a record of it. And whether it's dumping a trash can or painting a wall or hanging drywall or whether it's serving kids or ushering or whether it's doing something administrative that nobody ever sees and didn't even know you were the one in the church that did it. Oh, I didn't know. I figured somehow somebody took care of all the money. wonder who did that. God knows and he keeps records. And he knows your name and he knows what you're doing and you will be rewarded for that. And you're precious to him. And he sees that you're a beloved worker in the kingdom of God and what you do. Paul goes on, verse 10, to say, greet Apelles. He mentions approved in Christ. So apparently Apelles was someone who developed a great testimony because he had been tested severely and had handled it quite well. Here's how we know this, because that word approved in Christ there is a Greek term that speaks of a process of being tested and tried in order to become a useful, more valuable 
person, it was a term that was used of how they in that day would subject metals like silver and gold to intense heat with the purpose of refining those metals to make them become stronger, more precious, and more valuable. And this word approved in Christ speaks of how this is what Apelles' experience was. Though he was a believer, he had apparently been through the fire. And what the fiery trials were in his life, we're not told, but he was someone who knew Jesus, but he walked through the fire even in his relationship with Jesus. And as a result of that, the severity of his personal hardships made him the man that he was in Christ. It made him become more valuable, more tested, more approved as a vessel of honor. And you know, it's true. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in James how those enduring suffering always develop just a, a real depth of spiritual you know, intimacy with the Lord, character is developed, and there's something very wonderful that comes out of even those fiery, difficult times as we're put through the fires of circumstances. And such people like Apelles, who become approved in Christ through their trials and being tested like that, they also become very effective comforters of other people who are struggling and going through fiery trials like themselves. 2 Corinthians 1 says, God comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted by God. So listen, this morning, if like Apelles, you love Jesus and you're walking with Jesus, but at times in your life, or even, even today perhaps, you have been walking through the fire being burnt by people and under intense heat and pressure and difficulty. Listen, I tell you two things. Number one, God's doing something wonderful in you, in your character. And the other thing the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 1, is that God will use that and as you receive the comfort of God in the midst of your trouble to make you a more suitable comforter for other people who are going to go through the fire because no one is immune from suffering and difficulty. And this man was someone who had experienced those very things. Paul goes on, verse 10, to say, Greet also those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, verse 11. Paul says again, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now, some believe, commentators, that these are names of actually nobility. The terms of the names given here, that these are those who had governmental roles and royal status. As some read Herodian there, they believe this could be an, an inference to being relatives of the Herodian family, the Herodian dynasty among Rome there. Which shows, if so, it shows us this, that Paul reached out to people in all sectors of society. And I like this. It shows us that Paul the Apostle, as a soul winner and as a fellow Christian and a minister, Paul interacted with all classes of people. He didn't just think it's spiritual just to reach the poor. Paul thought, you know, no, the really rich royal people need Jesus really bad too. People in the government need Jesus too. People of status need Jesus too. And Paul understood whether it's common people or people of status and rank, he saw everybody equally important. And I think Paul related to everybody the same without partiality. He wasn't impressed if you were rich and had status and he didn't feel undue pity if you were poor and struggling. Paul said, look, we all need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. 
And I love this about Paul, that reality that he interacted with those in poverty. He helped those in royalty and just realized the value of those things. He goes on, verse 12, to then greet Trophina and Trophosa. Sound like Siamese twins, those two names, don't they? Trophina and Trophosa. He says again, look the term, he says, who've labored in the Lord. And greet the beloved Persis. Again, Paul comments, who labored much in the Lord. Again, Paul says, say hello to these folks. And here, notice the repetitious emphasis. These are saints who labored in the Lord, Paul keeps saying. I want you to take notice as we go through this list here, how many times already you keep seeing Paul indicate the value of the service and the contributions of women in kingdom work. Do you notice how many times he keeps complimenting women for their labor and their contribution to ministry? And Paul understanding too how spiritual life and ministry gets accomplished. Paul deeply regarded and appreciated people, we see him saying it all throughout this list, who just rolled up their sleeves and just got involved. And Paul keeps commending those who were just laborers who contributed to sharing in the workload. See, look, whether it's in business or whether it's in the body of Christ, it's easy to evaluate, it's easy to develop opinions and make suggestions and comments, but praise the Lord for people who just show up and serve, right? Praise the Lord for people who just roll up their sleeves and get involved and get the work done. These are blessed servants of Jesus, servants who labor, and they deserve great appreciation and admiration, those who labor in the Lord. And if you're somebody who labors in the Lord, let me assure you, you will get weary at times in the process. And you will get discouraged in the very labor that you do for the Lord. But I believe God would say to you, if that's you this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, you be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You keep laboring is the one thing you can do that will never be in vain in this life is the labor in the things of the Lord. Paul goes on verse 13 to say, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Now, Mark 15, 21, interesting verse tells us a man named Simon was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. And Mark 15, 21 says that Simon, the Cyrene who carried Jesus's cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So some believe that this could be the very Rufus who was the son of the man Simon who carried the cross of Jesus. If that's so, maybe the reason Rufus came to Christ himself was the direct result of his father's powerful experience that he had with Christ that day as he carried Jesus's cross. And let me say this as a parent, if you if you have a life-changing experience and encounter with Jesus Christ, that is the greatest possible contribution that your son or your daughter may have a genuine, sincere life encounter with Jesus Christ. I think it's beautiful here in this verse, Paul not only mentions Rufus as a friend or a brother, but it seems his mother became special to Paul in a relationship because Paul says, greet his mother and mine. Well, this wasn't Paul's biological brother, but Paul says this, this woman, Rufus's mother, she became like a spiritual mother, Paul says. She became like a spiritual mother to him. And isn't it wonderful how among believers in the family of God that truly relationships become like family? 
How your own family can be a shipwreck, dysfunctional as can be, and yet God blesses you with a church family, a spiritual family, where again, well, let me be honest, are quite as dysfunctional. But I think this is the best thing going. I'd rather be part of this dysfunctional family than any other dysfunctional family. But how you develop spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters, spiritual mothers. You know, I have a, a woman in York, Judy, who is just, I mean, just a spiritual mother to me. She became a spiritual mother to me in just a beautiful way when we were there pastoring their church in York. You know, a spiritual father, someone you look up to in the Lord who has that sort of role spiritually in your life. You know, God gives you spiritual sons and daughters that you just take under your wing and you love and you help cultivate. And just such a beautiful thing the family of God can become. Paul then gives some more greetings, verses 14 to 16 there. He mentions the syncretists and other names that I'm not going to slaughter because I honestly can't pronounce very well Uh, but again these names uh, we know very little about them again very much uh, of their being mentioned there is about the only thing we we know about them but it just again all these greetings Paul gives reminds us the Christian life is about relationships it's about community It's about sharing our lives with other people and building and maintaining those relationships. Now, verse 17 to 20, Paul gives one sort of, uh, if you would, closing uh, exhortation or instruction here. He says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. So Paul here gives a passionate warning regarding those among the ranks and relationships of the church, the family of God, who will separate and also, it seems, stumble and ensnare people. He says those, verse 17, who cause divisions and offenses, notice what he says, contrary to the doctrine of that you've learned or received. That word division there speaks of those who bring about separation from what is true or what's right doctrinally. And that's understood to be right in the sight of God. Dividing people from connection to the Lord and connection as well to other believers. Those who cause offenses, the term speaks of setting traps there. That The literal Greek he uses there speaks of the part of the trap or the snare they would use in that day. So that word he uses there, causing division and offenses, also speaks of setting traps to ensnare people, kind of baiting people to draw them away or or take advantage of them. And these dangerous people work in ways, Paul says here, that are opposed to sound doctrine. They contradict and work in ways that are contrary to the sound doctrine that has been taught and established to God's people. So here's what happens. You know, people like this come among the ranks of the church and they craftily introduce false ideas and false teachings. They're packaged spiritually, but yet they're complete error and they're heresy. In Paul's day, it was Gnosticism or asceticism. Today, people, again, in their own ways, will will introduce false ideas and teachings that look and sound spiritual, but are just completely erroneous. They come in and will seek to separate people off from the flock of God, to pull them away to pull them aside. Hey, well, you know, I know they're, they're teaching the Bible there, but th- there's a higher learning group that we have over here at our house. I mean, we're really digging deep. 
you know, into the things of God. You, you should come check this out. We, some, some unique revelations. And, you know, this kind of stuff transpires. They, they influence people in unhealthy ways and just bring them into ultimate traps and ensnarements. Paul said this to the elders, the leaders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20. Listen to what he warned there. He said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know, Paul says, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, feeding upon the flock for themselves. Also from among yourselves, Paul says, men will rise up from within the ranks of the church, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Paul here in verse 17 gives instruction regarding such dangerous and divisive people in a twofold way. He says, first of all, identify them, pay attention to them. He says there in verse 17, take note of those who seem to manifest these things. It's important. He says, recognize these individuals when they come among you, mark them out, Scopio, take note of them, keep an eye on them as a precaution and a safeguard, evaluate the fruit. And he also says in verse 17, secondly, to just avoid them. So he says, if you see this happening among a church, he says, and you recognize it, just stay away. Don't begin to listen. Don't go check out what their group is studying or learning. Paul says, just don't allow yourself to be influenced by such people. Don't put yourself in a vulnerable spot where you can then be influenced and expose yourself to what they're doing. He says, verse 18, for these, those who do such things, do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They may seem that they do, but Paul says they don't. But they're actually serving their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. So the Holy Spirit there gives us some insight into such people's motives and their methods. First of all, Paul identifies in verse 18 that these people will dwell among Christians, but Paul says they're not really serving our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says they're self-serving. They're self-serving. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing among the flock to just indulge their own personal appetites. They're looking for ways uh, to basically you know, fulfill their selfish agenda to satisfy their own interests, whether it's to sleep with sisters in the church, whether it's to get into the pockets of God's people, or whatever other selfish agenda they may have, they have their own desires. They want to gain what they want for themselves by preying upon people looking to satisfy their own desires and appetites in a very self-serving way. But Paul says they're not submitted to the lordship of Jesus. I don't care what they say or what their title is, Paul says. And, and he warns of that. He also points out, verse 18, that such people, he says, will be very good with words. Do you see what he says, verse 18 there? He says, these are people who by smooth words and flattering speech bring the deception to the hearts of simple people. So such people know how to say the right things, to sway people, to persuade people. And their method is to use how they speak in a crafty way. Look at the text there to deceive that's what they're doing they're looking to deceive people that word deceive means to seduce people in order to lead them astray to lead them astray to believe and to accept false ideas or to embrace error that will be destructive to them and Paul says as well verse 18 don't miss it that they tend to be most successful in deceiving the hearts of those who tend to be naive 
Those who are simple, the idea is gullible, naive. They exploit weak, mature, or excuse me, weak, immature, innocent people who can't recognize what's being done to them. They tend to be most successful among those who lack spiritual maturity. And Paul here warns of them. He then says, verse 19, for your obedience, now addressing the church in Rome, your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, he says, I am glad on your behalf. So it seems the believers in Rome were doing well in relation to obeying the true gospel and even probably honoring what Paul just warned about, if we think of it contextually, what he's saying here, what he just warned about there in verse 17 and 18 of those who were trying to pull people off into unhealthy things. So he compliments them here in the 19th verse, indicating, he says, I am really glad on your behalf that you're not being misled, that you're staying true to what's right and healthy, that you're not tolerating these evil schemes, he says. Verse 19, he says, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple, innocent, unadulterated concerning evil. Now, follow me here. Contextually, what is Paul talking about in the flow of our thoughts here? What Paul's talking about contextually is he's discussing and identifying avoiding unhealthy people, avoiding dangerous people, wolves in sheep's clothing who enter the ranks of the flock and family of God to deceive and exploit people for their own self-interest. And though Paul was very glad that the believers in Rome were not being deceived by such antics and being obedient to his instruction and warning even given there in verse 17 and 18, Paul said, I'm glad to hear how well you're doing there. I think here in verse 19, he's beginning now to exhort them not to put, hear me, too much effort, too much effort into trying to become experts in evil activity and trying to become overly engrossed in studying the ways of these sinful antics or divisive things or ensnarement. He says, look, but, but I, I'm glad you're being a bit, but I want you, he says, I want you to be wise in what's good. And he says, stay, stay unadulterated, unmixed regarding evil activity. He's counseling that they remain unpolluted in their understanding of evil activity, but put their focus and effort and energy on good things like love, like peace, like serving Jesus and sharing the gospel and, and forgiveness and learning what's good and learning about God and letting that be the thing that consumes their energy. And perhaps, and you're free to disagree, perhaps that's because maybe Paul did not want this instruction given here from verse 17 to 18 to be taken to the extreme. Taken to the extreme. Whereby it gets unhealthy listen because why the church is intended to be a family is intended to be a family where there's love and acceptance and, and, and despite our shortcomings and verse 17 and 18 are good instructions they're healthy instructions that leaders should take heed to and all christians should pay attention to but let me just say this and, and i say this with a fair amount of 17 years of pastoral you know, experience. Be wise and careful, however, if you tend to have a, a personality that loves like CSI or, or you have a nature that's kind of inclined towards being an undercover detective investigating things that you don't ever allow yourself to begin to think that God is maybe appointing you to sort of be the spiritual undercover agent among the church. 
And I've seen this in 17 years, more than once, where it can become the thing where a person almost begins or people begin to think that it's sort of their calling to keep an eye on the church, to run surveillance on certain people. And I just tell you this, that always hurts relationships. That always hurts relationships. There's a place for discernment, but may discernment never supersede love. God so loved the world. He didn't so discern the world. It's our job to love people. It's God's job to deal with people. And I think Paul here is just giving an exercise. Look, I just stay innocent regarding all these. Just stay innocent, as innocent as possible. Be as innocent as possible. Just focus on what's good. Focus on what's good, Paul says. And, and well, what if I don't do that? Then Satan's going to, he's going to wreck the church. Paul says, no, he won't. Look, verse 20. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Okay, thanks, Lord. <laughs> All right. You're going to take care of that, Lord. Continuing again with the context of dangerous, destructive people, Paul appears to indicate what? That these dangerous, destructive people were operating in such ways. Why? Because they were being used by the instrumentality of Satan's activity among the church. Because Satan is the one, is he not, who seeks to cause division, correct? It's Satan who is the one who creates scandals and wants to stumble people. Satan wants to ensnare and trap people in sin and things that are harmful. Satan, Jesus said, the devil himself is the father of lies. So his main MO is to try and get people to believe lies and to embrace lies. Satan is the one who leads people to be self-serving as he himself is self-serving and to use crafty and persuasive talk because Satan is a deceiver at his core and his ultimate agenda is to rob, kill, and destroy lives. To basically isolate sheep and devour them and his agenda is to disrupt the peace that God intends for his children's lives. And Paul recognized the sewers and those Satan will seek to operate as plots and plans in every church and in every family of God. Jesus, let us remember, said this, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I'm glad for that. I think that's why Paul here encourages those experiencing maybe cruel assault and attack of Satan. He says, listen, be encouraged because the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Isn't it interesting? God of peace violently crushing Satan. I mean, it almost sounds like an oxymoron. But what I'm reminded of is this. Sometimes for God to bring peace in a believer's life or even to bring peace in a church family, sometimes that necessitates that God must strongly first demolish and subdue Satan's antics and activity to, in order to eliminate those things. And this morning, if you're dealing with Satan's vicious attacks against you, maybe it's relational problems or struggles in your own mind, things you're going through or difficult circumstances, I want to say to you, be encouraged because the God of peace who wants to restore peace in your soul and in your mind and restore peace in the areas where Satan disrupts it, the God of peace is able by his authority and power to crush the antics of Satan and to subdue him in such a way, he says, look, he'll crush him under your feet. The idea is so that you can walk in victory over what Satan has been seeking to do and be able to move forward in the Lord. Well, Paul now closes his letter out here in verses 21 down throughout to begin to give some greetings from those 
who he was also there with. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sospiter, my countrymen, they greet you. Again, Timothy, we know, is a protege of Paul, a young man he mentored uh, and ministered to. And I think it's great when people take a younger person in their life or a few and invest in them like Paul did with Timothy. Verse 22, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now take note of that. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, how did Paul write his letters? He dictated them. The Bible seems to indicate maybe Paul had an eyesight problem, so Paul would dictate his letters and someone in an administrative secretarial way would record Paul's letters. I love that. Using administrative skills to serve Jesus, this man recorded this book of Romans. Gaius, my host, Paul says, and the host of the whole church greets you. So here's somebody who used his hospitality to host Paul and God's people in his house using his home and hospitality ministry. Erasmus, the treasurer of the city. So again, someone in a governmental capacity, Paul says, he's a part of us. He wants to send you a greeting and court us our brother. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And then Paul in a closing benediction says, now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. That's a summary of what we've studied through all 16 chapters in the book of Romans, the gospel of salvation through Christ. But now made manifest, how? By the prophetic scriptures, made known to all nations, Jew and Gentile, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. So Paul here is giving this closing benediction and I love what he does. He says, look, I am so glad to know, he says, that God is able to establish you. The idea is to keep you sustained or keep you uh, sort of upheld and Paul says, without my presence. Because Paul didn't know if he'd ever get to Rome. And Paul says, but here's what I'm glad to know. Even if I can't get to Rome, I know God will establish you. He doesn't need me. I love somebody like that who realizes, look, God doesn't need me. Paul says, God's able to establish you because he says, God is the one who has revealed to you your need of a saving relationship with Christ. God has given to you the prophetic scriptures and God himself, he says, is the everlasting God who's been around from time and eternity and will always be there for you. Paul concludes verse 27, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ Forever. So unlike, again, the foolishness of mankind who cannot resolve our own problems relationally with God, and we often can't resolve our own problems and needs with one another in our lives, but Paul says, but the wonderful thing is that God alone, he's wise. And you know the greatest way you know that God's wise? The greatest indication of the wisdom of God is what he has performed in Jesus Christ. To reconcile men in relationship with him and to be able to have a love and ability to reconcile human beings with one another, to have a relationship with God, and because of relationships with God, to then have wonderful, healthy relationship experience with one another. That's why Paul says, to God alone be glory through Jesus Christ forever. And everyone said...